0: to Galatians chapter 6 Galatians chapter 6 if you're using one of our uh, pew bibles that we have provided here you can find it on page 975 so Galatians chapter 6 page 975 this morning we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10 verses 6 through 10 now I want to start this morning with a bit of a poll how many of you and I'm asking for audience participation so raise your hands if you do How many of you pray before your meals? How many of you pray before your meals? Before you eat, yes. Okay. All right. That's a good thing to do. Praying before you eat is a good thing. It is a good thing to thank God for the food that you are about to receive. Now, I'm glad to see that most of you do that. Um, in, In doing so, when we pray before we eat, we're confessing that we are dependent creatures. And we depend on the mercy of God's kind providence to give us our daily food. And likewise, when we pray before a meal, we're reminded not to take the food that we're about to enjoy for granted. Uh, Praying before we eat should build our hearts up in thankfulness. Uh, Food is good. It could taste like cardboard. It doesn't. It's good to enjoy good food to the praise of the mercy and the grace of our glorious Father who keeps and sustains us so richly. In praying before our meals, uh, we reflect the pattern of Jesus who the scriptures tell us would take the bread and he would bless it and he would pray to his Father before he passed it out to his disciples. Now, as with most habits, however, praying before we eat can become something that we do as a matter of ritual, not because we're actively considering the significance of what we're doing. Now, we tend to fall into a routine. How many of you are like me? Uh, when I, when I Typically, when I lead our family in prayer... Uh, my prayers tend to be pretty much what I heard my dad praying uh, when I was growing up. And and there's nothing wrong with that. We, we learn how to pray from our parents. Uh, we learn a pattern of prayer that is good. But sometimes uh, that sort of habit, that pattern, can get you in a really peculiar situation, can't it? Uh, think about it. Have you ever sat down to pray? And then as you, and you say, Lord, please bless this food to nourish our bodies only to say amen and then to look down at a plate of greasy fries and a can of Coke. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? None of us thinks that in asking a blessing before a meal like that, that God is going to turn your Cheetos into a carrot stick on the way down. We, we, know, we know from nature that what we take in, what we feed our bodies is going to affect us. We know that what we put into our bodies will also get out of our bodies. So if you want to be healthy, you have to make healthy choices. You have to invest in good things if you want to get good things out. Well, the same is true with the church. What we put into the local church will also get out of the local church. If we want to see the church thrive, then we must be willing to invest ourselves into it wholly. Last week when I talked at length uh, about the importance of those covenant promises we make to each other as a local church, uh, I was trying to emphasize to you we have some practical ways of thinking about that. And our passage this morning is similar in that we're considering the commitment that we have to each other as the body of Christ as we're sort of wrapping up Paul's instructions to the Galatian churches as he's reconciling them and bringing them back together. If we are followers of Christ... If you claim to be a disciple of Christ, if you love him, then we ought also love what he loves. Jesus loves the church, and he calls and he equips his disciples to be part of the local church. As such, we each have a responsibility to strive towards doctrinal faithfulness And we are each called to act out our faith in accordance with the work of the Holy Spirit who is in us. Just as it is easy to take praying before you eat for granted, so we can also tend to take the local church and our role in it for granted. Repetition can be a great enemy to joyful zeal. And so my prayer is that as we consider what Paul has to say to the churches in this letter, that God will ignite a passion within each one of us to serve one another for the sake of the glory of King Jesus. So my prayer this morning is that God will use these words to help us see the vital role that we have as members of Grace Baptist Church to invest in one another, to do good, and to do it with the sort of joyful zeal that is worthy of Christ. Not just because we know we ought to do it, but because we are committed to Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God and his vision for the local church. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Once again, we're in Galatians chapter 6, and I'll be reading verses 6 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, if we're looking at this passage in particular this morning, we see that it is the sort of passage that commends perseverance to the saints the gospel of jesus christ calls us to faith which is to result in action it calls us to follow him we are called to live in a certain way because of the gospel of grace assured that the victory and the reward that jesus has won for us is secure So actually, I think it would probably be more accurate to say that this passage commands each and every one of us to persevere. If we trace Paul's way of thinking from chapter 5 up to this point, we end up with a couple of important statements which are supposed to inform the way Jesus has called each of us to live as his people. We've seen first that for freedom, Christ has set us free. That we are a free people. Second, we have seen that we must not use that freedom to serve the old desires of our sinful nature. Third, we've seen that we must leverage our freedom for the glory of Christ according to the rule of Christ, which means that we are to use our freedom to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, this is important. This progression is important. Last week, we considered that each of us will give an account to God for how we have used the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. While God deals graciously with his children, we're informed here that God is not mocked. We will each reap as we have sown. And therefore, Paul tells us that we must not give up, but we must persevere in putting faith into action, especially in how we treat one another. So that brings us to the main idea of our passage, which is this if we live by the spirit then let us walk let us keep in step with the spirit investing in the welfare of the kingdom by doing good we can shorten that down to a little bit more simple statement which is to this to say this if we live by the spirit then let us do good now what i want to do this morning is to outline for you three ways that we are called to invest in the mission of the church The three ways we're called to invest in the mission of the church. First, we're called to invest in the teaching of the church. We invest in the teaching. Second, we invest for the long haul. We invest for the long haul. And third, we invest by doing good. We invest by doing good. Now, before we get into those three ways that we're called to invest, I want to begin uh, by really pressing into this principle uh, of why it's so important that we do this thing. These things. And that, so we want to begin here. This is, if you've got the sermon notes, surprise, I've got another point. That is simply this we reap what we sow. We We reap what we sow. And therefore, that's what calls us to invest as Paul calls us to do here in this passage. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been really focused on Paul's instructions for how we are called to live the gospel of grace out. Towards one another. So this is how the gospel of grace affects the way that we each live in our daily lives. Uh, that is the common theme that runs uh, through this section of Galatians, uh, verse thir- starting in verse thirteen, all the way here to chapter six, verse ten. And you can see that in our passage most vividly from what Paul has to say here in verses seven and eight. Now I want to begin here this morning with these two verses. Because that's where we really see why all of this matters. Faith is to be put into practice. If we've really crucified the flesh, the sinful nature, that, the way that Paul speaks about here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, if we really live by faith in the Son of God, then our lives are going to look a certain way. We have to live accordingly to that. So merely adopting the title Christian will not do our soul any good in the end. Uh, Merely saying a prayer or walking an aisle or signing a card is not the sort of assurance that we need. Uh, If we are alive in Christ, then our lives ought to be reflections of that. Our lives ought to be a testimony of the truth that lives within us. So if we say with our words that we love God, but in reality we live in service to sin, not in conflict with it, then we have little reason to expect God's approval when we stand before Him. So this is a, a matter of serious importance. Verses eight and nine, sorry, verses seven and eight are meant to guard us from a hypocritical faith. A faith that lays claim to the riches of heaven while in truth it loves the priorities of hell. Now we're starting here because these verses link what Paul has to say about the way the church treats its pastors and elders and teachers. And the way that we're called to persevere as, as believers and the way we're called to treat one another uh, is all linked here to what it means to living and walking, to be living and walking in step with the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit means adopting the Spirit's priorities and that plays itself out practically in how we're called and equipped to meet the practical needs of our brothers and sisters how we're called to meet the practical needs of everyone we come to contact, really. This matters because of what Paul says in verse 7 and 8. Uh, Namely, this is a matter of eternity. If we sow to the flesh, that is, if we live according to the desires of the flesh, according to the flesh, not keeping in step with the Spirit, then we're told that we will not receive the blessing of eternal life, but rather that we will receive the curse of corruption and judgment. Now, as we look at these verses, there's a couple things I want to draw attention to. First of all, see this. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Now, what does it mean to mock God? Uh, To mock someone is to hold them in contempt. Uh, to mock God is to behave as if his word and his judgment and his sovereign authority doesn't matter. To mock God is to treat him not as he's revealed himself to, uh, to be in creation, in his word, and in his son, but rather to regard him as we would prefer to conceive of him according to our fallen notions. We mock God when we think we can deceive him with half-hearted obedience. Uh, To mock God is to try to gain advantage of him, trying to use him as a tool for getting what we truly want. But God is not mocked, Paul tells us. He is not some old fool in the heavens who is detached from his creation. God knows the, the thoughts of the mind, and he weighs the intentions of the heart. He is a perfect judge. He weighs what we do and why we do it. And he has appointed an order to this world in so that whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Ananias and Sapphira found this out when for the sake of appearing righteous, they sold a field, And they gave part of the proceeds to the apostles, claiming that they had given everything that they had received. Uh, They were expecting commendation. They lied because they wanted to look good. They thought they had found a, a, a way to get an angle on God, to enjoy his benefits and their money. And so they lied about what they had received. No one compelled them to sell their field or to even give the money they received from that sale to the poor. And in Acts 5, we're told that God struck them dead because they had conspired to lie to the Holy Spirit. God is not mocked. Secondly, we need to see that if we live with affection for the desires of the flesh, we will receive judgment. So you will reap what you sow. Follow Paul's logic here. Because God is not mocked, the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Now, Ellie and I planted a a garden this year. Well, We planted it a little bit late, but it is already bearing fruit. Uh, We planted tomatoes, peppers, beans, and lettuce. And in due time, provided that those plants don't die, we expect to harvest tomatoes, peppers, beans, and lettuce. We don't expect to harvest rutabagas, because we didn't plant rutabagas. What you plant, what you sow, is what you expect to harvest, and so it is with the way that we live. If we live our lives according to the priorities of our fallen nature, we will not receive the blessings of God, we will receive the curse of corruption. In this paragraph, Paul is drawing on that conflict that we've talked about, which exists between the flesh, that is, our fallen nature, what we have received from Adam, and the Holy Spirit, whom we have received through faith in Christ. When Paul talks about sowing to the flesh, we're supposed to call to mind those works of the flesh that he's already described in chapter 5, verse 18. If we live under the mastery of of our sinful nature, we show that we are not under the mastery of Christ. You cannot love God and love your sin. You cannot serve two masters because you will hate the one and love the other. What you plant is what you will harvest. Sin brings forth death. It brings forth the corruption Paul talks about here. It brings forth judgment. The point is this. We must not be deceived to think that we can claim allegiance to Christ while in reality we serve our fallen desires. God is not mocked. Christ is not a get out of free a get out of hell free card. He's he is either our master or he is our enemy. Either we will live by the Spirit in conflict with the flesh, in conflict with sin, making war on it, or we will live in peace with our sin and at war with God. And make no mistake, judgment is coming. The fruit of our lives will tell the tale as to whether we are resting in the gospel of grace or whether we are sowing to the flesh. And the third thing we should see from these two verses is that if we live in step with the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. Uh, Let's let's be clear here. Paul is not in any way commending a work salvation to us. That would undermine everything he has said in this book so far about the gospel of grace. Uh, What he is saying, though, is that if we have truly been born again, if we've been united to Christ by faith, that faith is going to bear the fruit of obedience to God. in in keeping with the life of the Spirit who dwells in believers. If we sow according to the fruit of the Spirit with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, if we sow the deeds of our lives with generosity, with kingdom priority, with a glad heart, and if we adopt humility, then we will reap the reward of God's approval. All of this we do out of the grace that we have received through faith in the work of Christ. Uh, That is what it means uh, to to be walking in step with the Spirit. So Jesus, the the message of the gospel is this, that that Jesus hasn't just secured a title of innocence for you. He's also secured the means by which believers now live in obedience to his lordship. Uh, The gospel teaches us that we are saved by grace, through faith, that our salvation and its rewards are not something that we have accomplished for ourselves. But it also teaches us, as Paul teaches us here, that the way we live matters. That The fruit of our lives, how we live, how we invest ourselves, shows who we truly value. A heart that has been made alive in Christ is going to live for Christ, just as a person who has been revived through CPR is going to breathe. It's, it's going to walk according to the desires of the Spirit. It's going to make war on those old desires. It's going to hate sin because it loves Christ. I love the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I believe in the effectiveness of the grace of God. I am anchored into that great promise that because of the work of Christ for us, there is therefore no condemnation, no corruption for those who are in Christ, since the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But the biblical doctrine that teaches me to find hope, and to find security in God's work of salvation through Christ, also teaches me that if I am truly a child of God, then I must walk according to the Spirit. Uh, The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints doesn't teach us that the saints are saved irrespective of what they do. It teaches us that if we love Christ, if Christ has saved us, if He's made us alive, we're going to live we will persevere because the Spirit of God has made us alive and He is leading us in how we ought to walk. Perseverance requires perspiration. It requires work. And passages like Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9 are intended to serve the church motivating us, invigorating us to press on towards the goal, knowing that if we sow to the flesh, uh, according to the flesh, we will reap corruption. Though if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. Our actions matter. They do not save us. Rather, they are the fruit, the right fruit of perseverance in Christ. They are the fruit of His righteousness, evidence of the life that is in us. So we find on the basis of this that the way we treat one another, especially in the context of the local church, really matters. The way we treat each other matters. God is not mocked. And that brings us to consider three ways that Paul calls each of us to invest in each other for the sake of the kingdom of God. First way that we invest is that we invest in the teaching. We invest in the teaching. Now, verse 6 is one of those awkward passages to preach on because it talks about the support of those who are teaching. So, I'm going to try to approach this as objectively as I can. This is what I would tell you if I was your pastor or not. So, let's look at what Paul has to say. He says, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Doctrine matters. What you believe matters. You should love. You should salivate for sound doctrine. If the churches in Galatia were going to survive, it was going to take faithful pastors who were able to teach and preach the word, who were committed to shepherding the flock in faithfulness to Christ. And the same is true today. Paul doesn't use the title elder or overseer as he does in other places, um, here in particular, but he chooses instead to address these individuals by their function. The fundamental part of pastoral, a fundamental, fundamental part of pastoral ministry is teaching. And in the case of the Galatian churches, they needed faithful teachers to defend the flock now more than ever. They were in a critical spot, and it was going to take committed pastors to to bring them where they needed to be. The meaning of this verse is really quite simple to understand. Those who are taught the word ought to support those who teach them. That's what it means in its simplicity. It means that we are called to use the resources God has given us to support those who are committed to teaching us. It's a similar idea to what we read in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 9 through 11, where Paul says that it is good and right for those who labor for our spiritual benefit to receive physical or material support. Pastors and teachers have an important role to play in the corporate life of the church, and they have an important role to play in our individual lives as we're seeking to live by the Spirit. So, as your pastor, I'm here for your benefit. I have been called, 1 Peter 5, to shepherd the flock that is here, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have me to do, not for the purpose of shameful gain, but with eagerness, not domineering, but living as an example to you. I take that commission really seriously because I believe that the preaching and the teaching of the Word has an important role to play in your faithfulness as you seek to live and in step with the Spirit. I think that this ministry has a role to play in you receiving the eternal reward which is yours in Christ. First Timothy 4 verse 16 says this. Paul says to Timothy, "Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So our actions matter. And I firmly believe, therefore, on the basis of what Paul has to say to Timothy and on the basis of what he says to the Galatians here, that the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word is of a benefit to your life in Christ and of your eternal reward to which you have in him. On the basis of this, the author of Hebrews instructs churches obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pastoral ministry is glorious work. It is hard work, but it is glorious. It takes time and commitment to prepare and to teach and to preach and to be available to counsel and to instruct and to chase wayward sheep. Paul instructed the Galatian churches to share all good things with those who had been appointed to teach and preach to them because he understood how important it is to have faithful teachers and preachers and how they benefit the flock. Investing in your pastor is investing in your own spiritual well-being. It is to your advantage to care well for those who teach you sound doctrine. Because that sound doctrine is an advantage to your soul. Now, I am not here to market skills. I'm called to serve you. I'm called to shepherd you. I'm thankful for how God works in spite of me. I'm called to spend time with you. I'm called to be spent for you for the sake of your sanctification. When Paul said this to the churches in Galatia, he wasn't just trying to make sure that pastors and teachers are compensated for their time. He was calling on the churches to support those who had been called to teach in such a way that those teachers could invest the sort of time and energy that was necessary to care for them. He was calling the church to invest in the preaching and the teaching of the word. The way that you you, you treat your pastor says a lot about your priorities, doesn't it? So, let me give you two ways to invest in your pastor. First, give as you have received. Notice Paul doesn't say, go out and take a loan so you can go and give the pastor a lot of money. He doesn't say that. He says to share what you have with the pastor. If you follow a person's money, you'll learn a lot about what they love. If we value the teaching and the preaching of the scriptures, if we really believe that this is the Word of God and that it's so important for us, then it ought, to, it ought, that it's so important for our growth in Christ and even for our very salvation, then we ought to invest in it with generosity and with purpose. When you give to the church, you're not just paying your dues, you're not paying a bill. You're you're giving to a ministry that is benefiting you and it's benefiting everyone else who hears it and participates in it. Uh, We are committed in this vision together. And I just want to commend you. I am so thankful for the way this church has uh, has just, without fail, supported and cared for my family. So as I preach this, don't think that this is me asking for a raise. I am am humbled to, to get to serve you in this way. I don't take this role for granted. And I'm grateful for the way that you as a church have always taken care of us. I do want you, though, to give to the ministry of the church, to consider that what you're doing isn't just something to just, like like the prayer that you utter before you eat your, your, your saltine crackers, that, that this is just, oh, we just do this because I, I can't eat non-blessed food. No, it, it needs to be something that we give out a purpose. I don't want you to give to the ministry out of compulsion the way you you pay a bill. Don't give in a fleshly way. The flesh expects to invest and to receive a greater investment. It, It does so from selfish motives. Don't give by the flesh. Give to the ministry according to the Spirit, out of a love for God and out of a love for His Word, in eagerness to invest in sound doctrine for the purpose of the glory of Christ. When you give, give with a heart that is expecting a great return from God. Second, invest in your pastor by encouraging me. Share with me what God is doing in your life through the word. I'm not asking for you guys just to come up to me after a service and say, great message, pastor, and then to walk away. I want to know how you're being affected because that that helps me know what you're getting and, and what you need to get. And it also encourages me because it tells me, uh, it, it tells me that God is, is taking his word and doing something I can't do with it, which is to affect you with it. I, I preach here. I don't keep you awake, per se, unless I start yelling. It's God that has to take these words and apply it to our hearts. That's why we pray for that every Sunday. And that's why we diligently devote ourselves to it. Because we believe that as we sow to the Spirit, so we will reap from the Spirit. So few things make my heart more glad as a pastor than hearing about what God is doing in your life. So, those of you, so share with me what God is doing. Let me rejoice in the harvest that the Word is having in you, and and do that with each other. But man, share that with a pastor. Paul Paul says you should. So here we go. There. All right. That brings us to the second way we're called to invest in the mission of the church. We're called to invest in the mission of the church by investing in the long haul. Investing in the long That is something that people in Wisconsin say, right? Investing in the long haul. Okay, just, all right, suddenly I felt my culture come out there. We invest in the long haul. All right, consider what Paul says to say here in verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Don't get tired of doing good. For in due season we will reap if... We do not give up. Farming is a hard way to live. It takes blood, sweat, and tears, but most of all, it takes patience. A farmer doesn't make his crops grow, but he has to plant, he has to water, he has to weed, he has to defend his crops from the pests, and then in the midst of all of that, he has to wait until the time of harvest when he then gets to enjoy the fruit of his labor. A, a farmer has to commit to stick it out, and so do we. In verse 9, Paul tells us that we must not grow weary of doing good. Uh, we, will, we, will not, we must not grow weary of walking in step with the Spirit or of fulfilling the law of Christ through acts of love towards one another. And the reason he says that we must not grow weary is because he says in due season we will reap. So there's a promise there. One day this striving against the flesh, this conflict that rages in us will cease. One day we will be gathered into the presence of our great and glorious Savior. One day we will be like Him and we will experience the great joy that we have longed for ever since our eyes were opened to the truth of the gospel. One day there will be peace. One day every desire of our heart will be good. One day death will be dead and the fullness of eternal life will be ours. But this is not that day. And so for now, there is still work to be done. And so we must not cease doing good, Paul says. We must invest in the long haul. We must invest in the eternal. Notice here that Paul builds a contingency in here, reminding us that God is not mocked. He says, in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So, don't give up. The reason we must not grow weary of doing good is because if we give up, if we cease to walk in step with the Spirit and choose instead, like the Israelites did when they were wandering in the wilderness to say, let's go back to Egypt, at least we had onions to eat there. Enough of this promised land talk. If we adopt that mindset, we will not receive the reward of eternal life that comes from the Spirit. Uh, The Word will be to us the way the seed was to that shallow ground which sprung up quickly, but then it could not endure the, the heat of the sun. We must dig deep and plan for the long haul. The good soil that bears fruit endures, so we must not lose heart. Now, that is easier said than done, isn't it? In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We must each count the cost of following Jesus. The way of Christ and the way of being his disciple is the way of the cross, When he calls us, he calls us to come and to die. But in doing so, he also calls us to live in him. Christ calls us to trade the temporary treasures of a temporary world for the eternal treasures of an eternal world. And as Jim Elliot has famously remarked, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I have a duty to follow the commands of Christ and to do good, caring for one another, in obedience to his law. But duty and delight are not mutually exclusive. In fact, if we merely do good because we must, we are not acting from a heart of love. We maintain, we maintain motivation to do good the same way that a farmer maintains his motivation to go out to his field each day. We know that a harvest is coming. A day is coming when we will reap what we have sown. And so we tell ourselves we must not lose heart, but we must press on towards the goal. We must persevere, and by God's grace, we will persevere. And in due time, we know that we will most certainly reap the reward. The third thing that we are called to invest by Paul here is that we are called to invest in doing good. Invest in doing good. So we have the, we have being, we've talked about being committed to the long haul. But what exactly are we supposed to do in the long haul? Well, here again, we go back to the law of Christ, which Paul referred to in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, he says. In verse 10, Paul explains a little bit more of what that means. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. If we walk according to the flesh, we will invest in ourselves. We will do what is best for us. But if we walk according to the Spirit, we will seek to put the needs of others before our own. We'll embrace the mindset of humility Christ has called us to. Although we must be committed to the long haul, not growing weary of doing good, we must also recognize that we have a limited amount of time in which to do this, don't we? Ephesians 5, verses 15-17 through say, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The law of Christ instructs us in the way of wisdom, and it instructs us to bear with one another, to bear each other's burdens. Paul says that as we have opportunity, we must strive to do good. Doing good Uh, Loving one another with a brotherly affection, caring for those who are suffering, is something that is written into the very DNA of who we are in Christ. Uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 22, which, which Brad read for us earlier, says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and the abiding word of God. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus says this. He says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And 1 John 2 explains, This sort of love, this calling to walk by the Spirit, to do good to everyone out of love for Christ, is a foreign concept to our flesh. Our world finds that to be very strange. In the 3rd century, the Roman Emperor Julian, who was a pagan and who was an extremely fierce enemy of Christianity, wrote in a letter to a pagan priest, Christianity has been specially advancing through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their love for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, he he calls them godless because they have served one God, the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. There you have a hostile man who was hostile to the Christian faith saying, man, these Christians, they just love each other too much. We're having problems because of the way they're loving our people. And we get a better idea of the sort of of care that Julian spoke of in his letter from the Christian historian Eusebius who was living at the time at that time, in the city of Caesarea. Now, the, the, the instance that, that uh, Julian is speaking of, uh, there was a famine and a plague that had struck the city of Caesarea. It was awful. Eusebius tells us that while the, while the masses fled to the hills trying to get away, the Christians decided to stay behind. And he writes that all day long they tended to the dying and to their barrier countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city. A multitude of them withered from famine and distributed bread to all of them. In the midst of tragedy, Christians must show love. And they stand out as disciples of Christ when we do so. Friends, that is what it looks like to do good to all. That's what it means to not grow weary of doing good, but to love with the love of Christ in the firm conviction that we have received a great promise from a a faithful Savior, a promise that causes us to love, even if it means losing ourselves, even if it means facing plague and famine or even death. That is the heart of the Christian. That is the heart of love we're called to do. The love of Christ must define us as a church. And notice that Paul calls us to show love to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, which is a way of talking about other believers. It's a costly sort of love, which we've been called to show each other, and which we've been called to show everyone. And the thing is, when I read this passage, I see no exemption clause here. No exemption clause. And if we are to be faithful to our Lord, who was criticized because of the way He came to the sick, to the way He came to sinners, who who was willing to touch lepers, and who called the little children to come to Him, we must be willing to love richly, and to give generously, to risk greatly, to risk te- the temporary losses uh, that we might incur for eternal gains, to attempt great things from God, knowing and expecting great things from God for the glory of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary of doing good, but rather let us do good to all, assured of the inheritance that is ours by faith in Christ, which is the promise of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have loved to the uttermost. You came to a broken world. You showed us what it means to love. You did this through your acts of loving service. You came, the one who is the Son of God, to dwell amongst the unclean.